0: Hello, my name is Matt Pullman, and welcome to episode five of Missing Words. In this episode, we sat down with famed photographer Glenn E. Friedman. Glenn has created some of the most iconic photographs from the world of skateboarding and music over the last 40 years. Glenn initially made a name for himself with Skateboarder Magazine, and soon found himself fully immersed in the crossover world and subculture of skating and punk rock. His books Fuck You Heroes and Fuck You Two showcase an underground that wasn't really being properly captured and photographed at that time. The images act as a time capsule for that era. But with the passage of time, the images have only become more impactful. He has shot photos with some of the most iconoclastic artists of our generation. Everybody from the Beastie Boys, Run DMC, Public Enemy, LL Cool J, Black Flag, Minor Threat, Fugazi, The Bad Brains, and many more. Not to mention all the famous skateboarders he's shot, like Tony Alva, Jay Adams, Dwayne Peters, Stacey Peralta, and many, many, many more. All the while, Friedman has remained a vocal and fiercely opinionated activist. He is also a devout vegan and straight edge. He remains just as passionate and vocal and opinionated during Trump as he did during Reagan. As someone who has experienced so much in his life, like so many of our guests on Missing Words, I wondered how he was keeping sane during this ridiculous administration. And one thing is for sure, he's not somebody staring at his iPhone every waking moment of the day.
1: One of the best ways to, uh, you know, to, to keep sane is to not read any of the news, or certainly don't watch any news unless it's like, you know, John Oliver or Stephen Colbert for fifteen minutes. You know, at the beginning of the show, that's the only news I would ever watch. And other than that, I kind of feel like. I knew what was going to happen. You don't know how shitty it's going to be or how fucked up it was really going to get. And all you really learn from the news is, you know, or even reading the, you know, around the newspapers or online is the details. But, you know, if you've been studying, you know, various political systems and you, you know, listen to Noam Chomsky, you know, you're for most of your life, you know, you kind of know what's going to happen. You kind of know what's going on and you kind of, you know, you just you know, try and change things the best you could, but all the news is telling you is just the fucking details of the dread, right? So right. I kind of yeah. try and stay away from it. I used to really look down at people who would ignore news, you know, and you know, and even family members who would say, oh, I don't want to watch that. It's too negative. And I'm like, well, we got to fucking keep in touch and know what the fuck is going on, and you should be up on these things. Well, I think that because I, you know, thought that at one time, I, I feel kind of guilty that I kind of feel like that now. It's like, you know, but 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 at the same time, I think I'm more educated than those other people that just turn off the TV because they don't want to hear negative. I, like I said, I kind of think I know the trajectory. You know, I kind of know what the fuck is going down, except for obviously there's some surprises here and there, but it's just, you know, it's completely fucked and we got to speak up and protest and, you know, and, and try and inspire people as much as we could to, uh, you know, change this shit.
0: At the same time, while finding the balance that works for you, Friedman believes that it's important to stay focused on the issues at hand and not attacking the tactics of people that are on the same ideological team as you. While there are plenty of situations happening on an hourly basis that bring an endless supply of dread, it's incredibly important to stay focused.
1: But, but then you have people you know, on the extremes of either side, and I consider myself you know, pretty far left you know but but even people you know people generalize and they and, and they get all you know preachy or they you know fatalistic or anti liberal you know for one reason or another you know and it's just like fuck that this i am so uh, you know i'm really into people just being positive and trying to make a change and i think that it's important to criticize absolutely but I don't believe in criticizing your own family personally in public, you know? Yeah. I think that, you know, I've seen, you know, certain uh, journalists, you know, who've gone off and said, Oh, you know, well these people, you know, everyone talks the talk, but they don't walk the walk. Well, you know, not everyone's able to walk the walk right away. I've learned in my ripe old age of 55, you know? Um, But if you could talk the talk, that's a good step in the right direction. You know, it's in the correct direction. Excuse me. You know, um, you know, and, and I think that's really important that, cause, you know, not everyone could be as radical as everyone else. I mean, there's just, there's family situations, there's upbringing, there's education, you know, and I've only, I feel as I've only learned this in my old age, you know, like, cause I've always been pretty radical in my politics and leaning, you know, far left, you know, as possible. Um, but it's like, you know, it's not everything is so cut-and-dry, and and when people start, you know, you know, being rude and disrespecting other people just because they're not as radical as they are, that's fucked up, and that's elitist in itself, you know? It's like, let you know, everyone's got to come to shit in their own time, and if they don't come in their own time and it's too late and the world ends, then so be it.
0: At the same time, a line has been drawn in the sand. You don't get to support Alex Jones or Nazis and get a pass. There's an argument for both sides in terms of how to deal with antiquated and racist beliefs. And while Friedman may not be checking Twitter every five minutes, he doesn't believe in being complacent.
1: Don't, don't get me wrong, you can yeah. certainly berate Nazis, and you can certainly right. berate anyone who, who stands by the term Republican. You should berate them. They're fucking scumbags and pieces of shit. And, you know, they're, they're either ignorant or greedy. If it was a real dictatorship right now, Colbert would be on, you know, he'd be hung. Um, yeah. it's getting there and he might be dead one day. I mean, he is really obviously getting under that asshole's skin, you know, or I hope that he is. I mean, I just, when you see the things that he says, it's just so, it's so, it's great. It's entertaining and it's fantastic and it's important that it's being said in public. And I really like that, you know? So, you know, I might, it might sound infantile to some people that I'm, that that's from you know, concentrating, uh, or my most consistent news source. But, you know, everyone else is like all over the place and I'm all over the place. I listen to a lot of other, you know, uh, and read other places, you know, Um, but, uh, you know, it just, and friends, you know, a lot of my friends have great influence over my thoughts and and understanding of what's going on in the world. So, but, but I'm really down on people, putting down people that are in your same realm. I really fucking hate that. I'm really sick of it and I'm disgusted by it. You know and um you know and it really bums me out you know you know not again not everyone could be as radical as this person may be or as you may be but if they're at least headed in the right direction it's like you know you know they're you know
0: they're not bad as he noted freeman's political agenda and beliefs can be traced to his friends But also his communication style about his political beliefs and leanings can be traced back to his conversion to veganism. And while some people take a hardline approach to being a vegetarian or being a vegan and beat people over the head with their beliefs, this seems like a bad approach. This isn't really about whether or not to punch Nazis. This is more about alignment, education, and making sure you're not causing a divide between allies.
1: At my age, I've come to learn that, you know, when I became vegan, you know, I, I, for the first 10 years of being a vegan, I was pretty hard-ass. And I, I converted some of my closest friends who became very famous for it, and, you know, and, and turned, you know, hundreds of thousands and millions of other people onto veganism. And that's all good because it's good for the planet, right? It's And it, in turn, it's also good for the animals and your health. But more importantly, it's good for the planet. It's a very unselfish thing to do, right? right. But in my early days, you know, I was what they – some – people might have referred to me as a vegan fascist, you know, I didn't let, if you weren't doing what I was doing, I was like, fuck you, you're a piece of shit. But, you know, in, in years I've learned, well, first of all, it doesn't help you convert many people, number one, but also it's like, you know, I wasn't a vegan my whole life. In fact, I used to eat at McDonald's, you know, uh, often. I used to eat steak. I used to eat, you know, I drank big glasses of milk when I was a kid, you know, um, but eventually I learned better, you know, and that's why, you know, I, ed- I was educated. I was turned on to it by, you know, some punk friends and gave me pamphlets. And all of a sudden I'm like, wow, this is how it's affecting the world. So and, and when I read those pamphlets, you know, and then I went and hung out with a friend for a week and stayed at his house for a week and, and had only vegan foods all the time. I'm like, oh, OK, I could do this, you know. And, and, yeah, yeah. and, and that worked out. And, um, you know, so but. It, you know, I wasn't. My point is, is that you know, I wasn't born vegan. I wasn't even a hippie kid. You know, um, with hippie parents. Uh, you know, I learned it on my own, and I came to it in my own time. By the time I read Diet for a New America in 1987, I was ready. I mean, I committed to reading a 300-page book, so I was kind of ready for it. And before I finished reading the book, I was done. I was in. I was all in. You know, that was it. You know, I, I you know, and, and you know, and I, I remember it fondly. And um, and and people got to understand. People have families. They have different situations, you know. But to say that you know, uh, you know, liberals suck, you know, they're you know because they talk or or, or this person is not hardcore enough or whatever. Fuck you too, you know. Fuck that. It's like how could you get down on someone for trying to do good? Okay, they're not doing good enough, but they're not the opposite. And if you think that someone is bad because they're not doing all they can do, but they're just doing what they could do, you're being a little rough and you're not going to get any people to follow you or your intentions very easily, you know? I mean, there's some people who are ready to be yelled at and to be smacked into place. And, uh, and, and and you know, you could beat them over the head and educate them. But I think that, you know, there's better ways of doing it. And and I just don't appreciate that, uh you know, the, the, that angle that some people are using these days.
0: Whether it's a movie, a record, or a photograph, all art changes in time. While the image stays the same, viewpoints, attitudes, and society change around it. But also, our viewpoints on certain artists in that time and place can be altered. Seeing his photo of the Beastie Boys in Washington Square Park, or Run DMC in Hollis Queens in the 80s would have brought a different reaction compared to seeing them 30 years later, or even viewing them after the death of Adam Yauch, or Jam Master J. And while the viewing audience has their own take, I was curious on how the photographer views their art after the passage of time.
1: Because back then, there were very important things that you had to get across in the moment, right? So like, for instance, a skateboarding photograph, you want to get the most, you know, it's about, you know, the activity and the intensity of the trick the person might have been doing. So if someone wasn't getting like, you know, Going further or higher or harder than the next guy. When I was editing that photo in 1977 and looking through my batch of photographs, that just went to the side. It didn't matter if everything else looked good. He wasn't high enough. He wasn't far enough out of the pool. You know, it just, you know, wasn't enough on the edge. So you just put that photo to the side. 30 years later, it's like, who the fuck cares? People are going 10 feet out of the pool now. It doesn't, it, it, when you look back on it, then all of a sudden you're just seeing even more of the beauty of the era and the characters. And it's not about just that peak moment of action, which might have, you know, put an X through that photo and put it away in the in the crap file for 30 years. And now I pull it out. And I'm like, okay, he's only on the tiles. He's not even out of the pool. But look what the fuck is going on. Every other part of my photo is great. So I threw it away only because it wasn't peak at that moment in time. Now that that peak has passed, you go back and those photos look great. You know, with the music stuff, it's not quite as, uh, you know, photos back then that look great. I mean, all of those were great back then, look great now. The thing was, is that some of the photos that weren't great back then that were skate photos look great now. Like a picture I just posted the other day of Jay Adams, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it wasn't anything incredible. He's riding a shitty little board, but when you look and see all the people in the background, you see the attitude on his face. You know, it's it's it's, it's priceless, really. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, with the music stuff, it's like when I when I think about it, I think that just more photos um, become more relevant as the time goes on, or more interesting to people. Like you know, for example, a picture of L.O. Cool J on a park bench that I might have made, you know, the first day I ever met him and we used one photo for a publicity shot this is before he ever had any publicity shots that were taken outside of the studio and before anyone really knew who he was his album hadn't even come out yet it his second single just come out and it was the first day i had met him quite frankly but i was already inspired by his records and he was a young kid and i wanted to you know shoot his picture he was probably you know a teenager and i was in my early 20s and um and uh The idea, though, back then is that you really wanted him to look tough. You wanted him to look like a badass, like the badass that he was rapping about, you know? So that was a great picture that everyone saw for the last 30 years. Well, come 30 to 35 years later, I look back at the role and, like, the whole fucking role is great. He just happens to look a little young and not so tough. But back then, we had to make him look tough because that was the image. But now now to see everything else in the photographs were fucking awesome. He just looked, you know, he had a little bit too much of a smile or, you know, a or, or grimace or, or whatever. He just looked a little bit soft. And that wasn't the image we were trying to get across then. But that's the real LL, not the one that I was trying to, you know, uh, uh, idealize, right? And so, you know, those pictures look great. You know, and so, and the same with the, you know, so many of the different artists, you know, I mean, um, other than Public Enemy, I think Public Enemy, I think like, I didn't, we we worked very hard and very diligently and very precisely. I didn't shoot a lot of film of them. We just did photos and that was it. And that was done. You know, we didn't sit, you know, because there were so many people and, and just, it was usually, it was just a
0: different thing. Glenn's Instagram is definitely a great source for seeing his work throughout the years. However, I was curious as to what he thought about the modern concert-going experience. We all know this experience very well. You were enjoying the show, trying to be in the moment, and bam, some bozo in front of you busts out his iPhone to get a crappy photo. Hey, I'm guilty of this too, but one or three photos is one thing. Spending all concert on your phone is another. Everybody is a photographer now with the iPhone, and the actual professionals have definitely noticed this.
1: I think when I go to a show and I see 100 people holding a phone up, it's disgusting. It's, it's despicable and pathetic. You know, I think that it was hard enough for me when I took photos and I was looking through, you know, when I made photos back then, I mean, I really had a duty to do it. You know, things were really inspiring me and kicking my ass. And I was doing it to share with other people and to inspire other people who couldn't be there. I think a majority of people are holding up phones are just doing it to have a moment for Facebook, right? Or a moment for their Instagram. Or they just want to prove that they were there, you know? It's like, I I mean, I didn't even bring my camera to most shows that I went to. I shot probably 10% of the shows I went to in my life. I hated being a camera nerd. I didn't want to carry a camera with me. Sure, there were some great moments and bands that I missed, you know? But I want to enjoy the moment with, you know, with my own two eyes and with my lungs and my arms and legs and, you know, and, and I, I just want to be there in the moment and enjoy it and live it. I don't need to document it necess- every time I'm there. That's for damn sure. And if you're just someone in the audience and you're just, first of all, you're putting up your phone, blocking the vision of somebody else watching the show. You know, when I made photographs at shows, I wouldn't even, you know, very, very, I would rarely would I like stand up in front of people to make a photograph, you know, I would try and and if I'm gotten away of the audience, or if I was standing in front of someone in the front row, or kneeling in front of someone in the front row, I would do it for a very short period of time. And I would always say, excuse me, do you mind? Excuse, I'm just going to shoot, you know, I'm uh, pardon me, I'm shooting a photo here for a moment. You know, I hope you're okay with that. I'm not going to stay here the whole show, you right. know, and I was very conscious of that, and these people don't give a shit. Everyone's just there. they think they have a camera. I'm taking pictures. Let me do this, you know, and particularly if you have a thirty five millimeter camera now, you know a SLR or whatever they call it now, a big camera, not just a phone, they think they rule the world, that they can get carte <laughs> blanche to just get in front of anyone anytime, and I think that's disgusting and pathetic and rude and selfish, you know right um, right you know I mean, I think that you know, I went to a show where I didn't have my camera, and the performance was so incredible. I was like, God damn it. I just got to get one photo of this just for myself, you know. <laughs> and I and I was so embarrassed, and I pulled, yeah, out, yeah. I pulled out my iPod Touch because I didn't have an iPhone until today, by the way. I finally got – I didn't get an iPhone. I got – 10 years later, I got an iPhone. Uh, <laughs> someone gave it to me. I only took it because someone offered it to me as Correct. a gift. Yeah. And because I can give my own flip phone to my son who needed a phone now. He's 10 years old and we wanted to, you know, he needed to call us after school and stuff. So I gave him my old flip phone, which I used until today. <laughs> um, <That's> amazing. <laughs> um, but I had iPod touch. So when I would go to business meetings and at offices, I could, you know, I could check my email when I got on Wi-Fi and stuff like that. You know, so I had the iPod touch with me that night this summer when the makeup was playing down at uh, the pier, you know, down at... um, Yeah, the the waterfront, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it was just such a phenomenal fucking view. I mean, I only took like three pictures, you know, and, uh, you know, but people were there, the whole, you know, because the thing is, if, you know, someone else is, you know, that's the other thing, is when I was making pictures very often back then, at a lot of gigs, there were no other photographers, no one, not one fucking person in the house taking a picture. And when there were other photographers, okay. So out of 800 people, there was maybe three people or two people making photographs that night, you know? And, you know, but very often there wasn't anyone else, you know? And so it was important, especially if I was being inspired, to share this with other people. And I had the outlet of Skateboarder Magazine in action now and later on the fanzines of being able to share my perspective with people and, and inspire them and stuff. So, you know, I think making pictures is much more important then, but when you see an audience and half the people are looking at their screens, rather than the live person in front of them, it, it kind of, it makes, it turns my stomach, yeah.
0: As you may have heard in episodes with Cosmo Vinyl and Vivian Goldman, I am fascinated by what keeps somebody in New York City for all these years. As somebody who has spent such a large portion of their life here, what keeps them in the city with all the stress and anxiety and broken train services? And while he's admitted he isn't as active with photography these days, Glenn is still running his business, his livelihood and raising a family here. What keeps him here in New York City? There's a lot of different levels of why I stay in New York.
1: I've been here, living here straight on for 30 years now. You know, I moved back during the peak of hip hop, right? I grew up in the the tri-state area before I moved to California in second grade. Um and then came back here for high school, went back there for college, and then came back here before I ever graduated to work with Def Jam real closely, you know? So I've had this relationship for a long time. But back in the mid-'80s, when I realized when I was coming back and forth between L.A. and New York, I'm like, why am I going back to L.A.? I don't like it there. And the people here make me, I feel more at home in New York. That said, I've come to learn that New York is always changing. And it does suck, it is shitty now compared to what it used to be. But you know what? That's just how cities are. Because I'm sure that people in the 50s thought the 60s sucked. And people who were living here in the 60s. When the 70s came along, they probably said, damn, this sucks. They're really fucking this place up. So I think it's just how shit evolves. You know, it's it, the city is always evolving. At least it's kept some of its character, some of its architecture, unlike Places like Los Angeles that have nothing more than five years old, so it seems.
0: Thank you for listening to the fifth episode of Missing Words. I want to thank Glenn Friedman for taking the time to speak with me on the phone. Be sure to follow him on Instagram at Glenn E. Friedman. You can pick up his work and get news about his latest projects with Burning Flags Press at burningflags.com. I want to thank Discord Records for allowing us to use the music in this episode. And as always, thank you to Bill Shuldis for producing this episode. And here comes the usual bit of podcast housekeeping. It would mean the world to us if you could leave a rating for the show. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast via your favorite podcast listening service. And please do not hesitate to send us feedback and suggestions. We have a contact page on missing-words.com. And we'd love to hear from you. We'll be back with episode six of Missing Words soon enough. Thanks for listening.